Chapter 21 I came back into myself walking uphill along a dirt trail through a cowfield. Clouds glowed with the light from the moon hidden behind them. The field was surrounded by trees, black against the silver night sky. Ravens flew above me, or hopped along the trail ahead and behind, cawing with excitement over, my spreading cackle I presumed. My eyes head skin and bones all ached as if I had a fever, except there were voices in the ache, in the pain. How long had I been out? I stopped to turn back. A reflex. A mistake. The pain flared, thousands of screaming needles piercing through me with echoes whipping behind them and cinching, cinching. So I kept walking, kept to the trail. The stabbing contractions, the maddening screams suffused, and the ache and murmur returned. Was this the path of least pain Kalia had told me about? Was I walking toward her now? Or was this a side effect of the pill I'd swallowed, somehow reproducing a version of the path? At the edge of the tree line, the trail forked. One way was more painful to look at than the other. I took the least painful way into the woods. The trees blocked out most of the sky here, but I could still see the trail in front of me and the ravens above me, flying from branch to branch, blacker than the night. The path of least pain took me through the woods to a small cabin with no driveway, only another trail veering off to the left. As I neared the cabin, I could see even in the pale light that it had not been built with much skill or care. It had no porch or windows, and it stood on cinder blocks. The siding was bare plywood, and the roof was flat and without gutters. I heard voices inside. A man yelled, There are leeches in the cranberry bog. Is that normal? Mary says she doesn't care how much your back hurts. The front door was made of plywood and had no doorknob, handle or lock, only a small piece of wood that swiveled on one nail. Following the least pain, I swung the door open and walked into a single room, lit by a propane lantern hanging from a low ceiling. Three full-length mirrors were lined up in the center of the room, each with a person standing in front of it, two men and a woman. One of the men was Kalia's brother, Hugo Sinclair. I'd found him. Hugo and the other two were engrossed in conversations with their reflections. They ignored my entrance, didn't even spare me a glance. They wore casual clothes that were covered in what looked like food stains. The strange man was whimpering and whispering something I couldn't make out. Hugo's was the voice I'd heard outside, and he was still going on about cranberry bogs. The woman laughed and pointed wildly at her mirror, then said, You sang like a canary. I can't believe it. Are you a man or a mouse? Karen just lifts. The floor was littered with empty water bottles, wrappers, and cardboard trays partially full of gas station food, cheap pastries, string cheese, chips, jerky. The walls were covered from floor to ceiling by spice racks, each identical to the next, hung in neat little rows. They held thousands of small bottles with white labels and eyedropper lids. A few words were handwritten on each label in a language I didn't recognize. A table and chair were bolted to the floor in one corner, and an old potbelly stove that didn't seem to produce much heat sat in the other corner. I grabbed Hugo by the shoulder and shook him. Wake up. Let's go. Kalia's in danger. Hello? He didn't avert his eyes from the mirror once, didn't even acknowledge I was shaking him. The door behind me creaked. I spun around, and there he was, Eric Olson, the man from the shower curtain Worrell, wearing flannel pajamas, muddy slippers and a winter coat, unzipped, 
exposing a pajama top littered with popcorn debris. I saw the birds, he said in his strange accent. I came to see, and now I am having three surprises this evening. One, you are not Miss Sinclair. Two, you are awake. Three, you are visible with my two naked eyes, which should not be an occurrence unless you are walking from such places as far-fetched as Grants Pass, Oregon. These are times and distances I am not believing you have come by the good conditions of your tennis shoes. You must be special, no? What is it that you are? We shall discover, yes? He turned to the wall of spice racks on his right and hummed as his fingers glided over the bottles. Ah. He picked one up. How would you be enjoying bamboo under the fingernails? Eric blocked the door, the only exit. He was smaller than me in height and build. I'd wrestled two years in high school. I could take him. But why did he seem so confident? Did he have a weapon other than whatever cackle poison was in that bottle? I'm taking these people with me, I said. And there's nothing you can do about it. You have unfortunate thinking in your brain. You are the one who is demonstrating the underhand here. He unscrewed the lid to the bottle, held up a dropper full of liquid, and advanced. I assumed a fighting stance. Get back. He did not listen. I couldn't let whatever was in that dropper touch my skin. When he came within range, I kicked at his chest. But in the moment before my leg extended, just after my momentum prevented a change in course, he casually stepped to the side, no sign of worry or strain on his face, dodging my attack as if I were a predictable video game boss he'd defeated many times. My foot landed in air, but I recovered quickly, throwing a punch at his head. He dodged that in the same manner as the kick, keeping the bottle steady and level in his hands. I doubted he spilled a drop. Oh my poor unusual cowboy, he said. These efforts will not give fruit. Your cackle is still spreading. You are not unusual in that at least, and this is to my superior advantage. I threw a flurry of quick, desperate punches. All of them missed their marks. It was like he could read my mind. And maybe he was. Maybe my magical pheromones were giving me away. Mummers were vessels for the stuff. He probably had some method of deciphering what I was putting out there. At this point in our strange dance, Eric was no longer between me and the exit. He was right. He had the superior advantage. I needed to retreat and regroup. I pivoted away from him and sprang for the door. But before I could reach it, I felt something cold and wet on my scalp. Then there was an excruciating pain under my fingernails. I dropped to my knees. The voices annihilated me. And I blacked out again. When I woke, I was in the same cold, dank room. My wrists were zip-tied to the table in the corner through little holes in the wood. I sat in the chair, my ankles zip-tied to the legs which were bolted to the floor. My butt ached from sitting so long. How long? My knees screamed to be straightened, stretched. I lifted off the chair as far as I could. I tugged and jerked on my restraints, and they scraped and dug into my skin. The babbling from Hugo and the other two prisoners seemed less exuberant than before. The door opened. Sunlight burst through along with Eric. I'd been here all night at least. With a smile he said, 
Time for feedings of microwave burritos, my little cowboys and cowgirls. In his hands were three gas station burritos in steaming plastic sleeves. He looked at me and plopped two of the burritos on the table. Good morning. Let me go. Ignoring my yelling, he took a bottle from one of the racks and squeezed a few drops of it onto Hugo's head, then threw a sheet over Hugo's mirror. Hugo stuck his neck out and pantomimed eating something like a sandwich, lifting cupped hands to his mouth and biting and chewing air. He nodded, as if listening to someone make a point. After unwrapping the burrito, Eric squeezed it between Hugo's fingers. And Hugo began sloppily eating the burrito while its filling spilled out the bottom onto the filthy floor. Only half made it inside his mouth. Careful, Eric said. It's hot. Using different bottles from the racks, Eric repeated this procedure with the remaining two prisoners. Then he wiped his hands on his pants, picked out two more bottles, and set them on the table in front of me. Tapping one lid, then the other he said, This one is for scalping, and this one is for crushing of the big toe with a hammer. Choose. I don't understand. With this one, you feel the crushing of the big toe. With this one, you feel the pain of the scalping. Choose. Neither. I choose neither. If you do not choose, you shall be receiving both of these experiences, and that will be a type of choosing of its own. Why? Choose now or I give both. The toe one. As he unscrewed the lid, I remembered how painful the last drops he'd given me were, and I panicked, wrenching at my restraints, bucking my whole body. But the ties held fast. Eric squeezed the liquid onto the back of my hand. A siren of pain sounded in my big toe and blared up through my leg. My muscles clenched. And I blacked out again. When I came to, Eric was ushering the prisoners outside saying, pee pee poo poo time my little cowboys and cowgirls. The sun was still out and the grease stains from the burritos were still on the prisoners' faces. I was pretty sure this was the same day as when I'd last been conscious and by the intensity of the sunlight, no more than an hour or two had passed. Would he take me outside to go to the bathroom next? If so, I had to be ready to bolt. You have gone pee-pee-poo-poo -poo already, Cowboy Charlie, Eric said from the doorway, answering my thoughts. So he could read my mind through my magical pheromones after all. That was how he'd so easily avoided my kicks and punches. And he'd made me pee while I was unconscious. What else had he done? What else would he do? If I had any hope of escape, I needed to stop my cackle from spreading. But to do that, I needed my bond, Kalia, near me. Or I needed a dose of Odolith cackle. Maybe there was some in one of these bottles. There had to be for him to wake me up from full season like this. But there were so many. And they were labeled in a foreign language. How could I find the right one? Eric laughed. You search for solutions that are not existing. You will be my guest for a length of time of my choosing. He waltzed over to me and set down two more bottles. Boiling water poured on your face or a slicing of the Achilles tendon? Choose. Boiling water, I said through my teeth. Two drops. Unimaginable pain. Unconsciousness. The next time awareness returned, the door was closed. Eric was gone.
and the prisoners were back at their mirrors, vital and animated, jabbering like they were at a party. A brown liquid had run down their foreheads from their scalps in streams like too much hair dye had been applied. The streams appeared to be drying, though they still glistened in the lantern light. Eric must have dosed them with several of his bottles. Now was my chance to think without Eric eavesdropping. I knew from the Chicago ghost Nancy had tried to throw at me in the Kmart parking lot, that cackle spreading directly from someone diffused at a distance. It had a range of some kind. Even if Eric was just outside, he might not catch everything I thought. Eric forcing me to choose my torture every time I woke up reminded me of something Kalia had mentioned about Rikulaks. They fed on the choices of their hosts, and if something was preventing the host from making choices, the Rikuluk would do something about it, like whatever it had done to Lou's straw doll in the toy aisle at Kmart. Did Eric know I was infected by a Rikuluk? Probably which meant he was probably afraid of what my Rikulik would do if I stopped making choices. But I was also afraid of what it would do. How powerful was it? Could it change this timeline? What would I be risking by refusing to make a choice? Unknown. But if I didn't try something, I would spend the rest of my life being tortured in this squalid cabin. That was known. And if I couldn't help Kalia, she might spend the rest of her life being tortured by Brad. And without me, M would be completely reliant on Lou, a person I barely knew. I had to take the chance. Next time Eric asked me to choose between tortures, I would choose the first option, every time. And hopefully, that would be enough to starve out my Rakulik and force it to do something. Anything. The last time my cackle had spread this much, I'd been in the apartment above Neil in a mold. The voices in my body had offered helpful information at the time about the mummers who'd been with Naomi. They told me about mummers' spatial awareness problems and the food test. Kalia had called it gleaning the ghost. Where were those voices now? I could use their help. There was a low murmur throughout my body, but none of the voices spoke up. Had Eric suppressed them somehow? Eric was a mummer. Earlier he dodged my attacks with ease, showing no issues with spatial awareness. But he'd been reading my thoughts at the time. A blind man could duck under my punches with that advantage. And the examples of spatial awareness problems the voices had given me were about getting lost in your hometown and not being able to fill a grocery bag efficiently. For all I knew, Eric could have those issues too. But how could I use that to escape? There was a scuffing noise behind me followed by a knock and a grunt. I turned my head as Eric rose to his feet and stumbled past me, eyes half-closed, hunched over and swaying as if his head was too heavy for his body. A serene smile was pasted on his face. He'd been sitting behind me the whole time. Had he read my thoughts, my plans to activate my Rakulik? Why didn't I realize he could have been behind me? Stupid. 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 He shuffled to the middle of the room between his three prisoners and languidly rubbed his face and head. He was high. One of the prisoners tiptoed backward, pirouetting like a ballerina. Their elbow connected hard with Eric's shoulder, and he careened toward my table and slammed into it. Laughing, he pushed himself upright again and held up his hands as if he were introducing King Kong to New York. Looking down at me he said, these are my instruments and what beautiful sounds they make. 
Different parts make different sounds, burns, stabs, shocks, peelings of skin, all music to me. I am a maestro of these things I do. You're an addict, I said. The artistic temperament is by nature obsessive. These things we know. He was chasing a high. I'd seen my mom do it for years. As tolerance increased, so did the doses. Mobiak Worrell's, other people's lives and memories, were Eric's heroin. Giving his victims bloom didn't satisfy him anymore. He needed the potent cackle only his specialized pain potions could provide. I realized he couldn't read my thoughts right now. There was too much cackle in this cabin. He was overdosing. That was why the pirouetting elbow to his shoulder had been a surprise to him, why he didn't answer any of my thoughts like he had before. Have you heard of this white elephant, he said. This is something special that is as well a great burden. This is what you are. I am wondering if your value is of less weight than your burden. In these bottles, I have been harvesting all of the pains of life. It has been long years and strong work, even bloody work to have these treasures at my beckoning. And you, such a special cowboy, are having nothing to add. A dilemma, yes? You are a very shiny thing, but you add nothing and take very much trouble. I'm thinking of being done. What about the pain of a reculic bite? I said, the instinct of self-preservation sparking an idea. I bet you don't have one of those. I didn't either, but he didn't know that. His eyes popped. I'd been hemorrhaging cackle almost since the moment I'd arrived here. As a mummer, he had access to my whorls. Surely, he'd already rifled through them all looking for his next fix. But I remembered there was one painful memory that had been blocked to Kalia, the cheese Danish episode. And if it was blocked to her, it was probably blocked to Eric too. But I didn't know for sure until he puffed out his lips and said, Continue. A spring of hope in this desolate place, I maintained a poker face but only barely. He was so drunk on cackle, I could make up any story I wanted for what was inside this whorl that was hidden to him. For once, I was thankful for my psychological baggage. I'll make you a deal, I said. You let me go, and I'll let you make one of your potions out of my reculic bite whorl. He snorted. I am the one having the leverage in this transaction, and I propose this. You give me the access, and I won't be killing you. I'll need a totem. Tell me the nature of this totem, and I retrieve it. I don't think you can. The totem's a stump. I saw one on my way here, that'll work. He narrowed his eyes. A stump. Anything can be a totem. This I know. But I am wondering about this stump. This is no common thing. Neither are Rakulik bites. Hum. He grabbed two more bottles from the racks and set them down in front of me. I will think on this. Now. Piercing of the eardrum or standing with naked feet on hot coals? Choose. The first one, 